Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 10, the book of Acts, chapters 3 and 4. Well, we're going to continue at our measured pace through Acts chapter 3, go right on into chapter 4, because there are so many theological implications that pass right by us if we don't. And when they do come up, it behooves us to notice and to talk about them. So, because of a single word, single word, that we found in Acts chapter 3 verse 19 in the most popular version of the Bible ever created, the King James Bible, we spent much time last week with an issue of vital importance to our faith and to Jewish-Christian relations. That single word is convert. In the King James Version of Acts 3.19 it says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Now the reality is that the English word converted isn't there in the Greek New Testament manuscripts. Rather, in Greek, the word is epistrepho. It doesn't mean to convert. It means to turn. It means to pivot. Convert, of course, means for a thing to become something else entirely. But to turn means for a thing to change direction. So which is a new believer to do in order to have our sins blotted out? Convert or turn? Big difference. Big difference. The choice of convert or turn should not be viewed as some highly nuanced scholarly debate that belongs only in the realm of theologians. Rather, it's fundamental to Christianity. And it helps to define what the terms of our membership are into the kingdom of God. Why was the word convert chosen? by the King James Version translator if the word wasn't actually there. Because the Roman church had for over a thousand years declared itself to be a Gentiles only institution. Jews were welcome if they converted. Converted from what? From being a Jew into a Gentile. A Jew had to quit being Jewish in order to become a Christian. And the underlying theological assumption was that Jews were required to change from following something that the church deemed had been wrong, the biblical Torah, the law of Moses and the subsequent Jewish traditions, to something that the church deemed was right the New Testament, and subsequent Roman Christian traditions. Naturally, the result was that except for a tiny handful, the world's Jews shunned Christianity for themselves because it necessarily met up, uh, meant giving up their Jewishness and their Hebrew heritage. Thus, for around 1,700 years, a formidable wall has existed between Judaism and Christianity, but in reality, the wall is a barrier between Jews and their Messiah. Now, we concluded our last lesson with me urging all who hear my voice to 
please remove the term convert from your Christian vocabulary. Rather, Jews, just as Gentiles, are not required to convert, but to turn from our sins, to turn from idolatry, to turn from man-made doctrines to the one God, Yehovah, and His Son, Yeshua. It is through repentance and turning, not converting, that our sins are blotted out, says Peter. Paul says that Jews should remain Jews. Gentiles should remain Gentiles in Romans 2 and 3. But our mutual salvation comes from the same place. The person and the lordship of Yeshua the Messiah. And we are to share one mutual holy book, the Bible. Old and New Testaments working together as one unified, inspired source of God's Word. Well, let's move on now. Complete Acts chapter 3 and we'll get started with chapter 4. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3 and we're going to reread a few verses. Acts chapter 3. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're going to start on page 1364. 1364, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're going to be starting with verse 19 and reading to the end. Therefore, repent. Turn to God so that your sins may be erased, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord's presence. And he may send the Messiah appointed in advance for you, that is Yeshua. He has to remain in heaven until the time comes for restoring everything. As God said long ago when he spoke through the holy prophets, For Moshe, Moses himself said, Adonai will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You are to listen to everything he tells you. Everyone who fails to listen to that prophet will be removed from the people and destroyed. Indeed, all the prophets announced these days, starting with Shmuel, Samuel, and continuing through all who followed. You are the sons of the prophets. You are included in the covenant which God made with our fathers when he said to Abraham, By your seed will all the families of the earth be blessed. So it is to you first that God has sent his servant whom he has raised up, so that he might bless you by turning each one of you from your evil ways. Verse 20 speaks of times of refreshing that come for those who repent and turn from their sins to Christ. This refreshing comes to us due, it says, to the presence of the Lord. The word refreshing is translating the Greek word anapsixis. Anapsixis. This term occurs in the Septuagint, that early Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that came before the Dead Sea Scrolls. But there it is translated into English as relief or respite, not refreshing. So it seems to me that the intent of verse 20 is not so much that the presence of the Lord will refresh, but that He will provide relief and He will provide rest. And this seems to play well with Yeshua's call that we read in Matthew's Gospel in 11.28, Come to me, all you who are struggling and burdened, I will give you rest. And yet, even Yeshua's statement to that effect 
is but repeating what the Father said in the Torah and Exodus 33. And Exodus 33.14 says, He answered, Set your mind at rest. My presence will go with you after all. And the reason that I want to draw this connection concerning rest in the Lord for you is this. In verse 20, when it says that the Lord's presence shall bring times of anapsixis, relief, rest to believers, who is the Lord in this case? Is it the Father or is it the Son, Jesus? Which one are we talking about here? The answer becomes clear when we look at the remainder of verse 20. Because then it continues, and He may send the Messiah appointed in advance for you, that is, Yeshua. So obviously, the He, the Lord, is referring to the Father. Otherwise, we have the Messiah sending Himself. So it is the Father who is here being called the Lord. Now, verse 21 explains that Yeshua must remain in heaven until the time comes for restoring everything. Now, we're talking about a planet-wide restoration for all who have been elected for restoration, and this is going to happen upon Christ's return to earth when the Father decides that it's time. And yet we must also understand from the previous verse that it is God the Father by whose power the restoration will come even when the time of Yeshua's return arrives. See, this brings us back to another important issue that we talked about last week. This well-understood concept in New Testament times of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Go back to last week's lesson to get a more thorough discussion on this subject. But the Reader's Digest version is that the Son is subservient to the Father. And the Father can, and regularly does, give some of His power and authority to His Son to wield. This is not a transfer of power and authority such that the Son now possesses it, but the Father renounces that power and authority that He kind of used to have, but now He doesn't anymore. Rather, it is that the Son becomes the Father's shaliach. Shaliach, His agent, His proxy to carry out the Father's will. It is the Father's power through His agent, Yeshua, that's being exercised here. So when we read in the book of Matthew in 28.18, Yeshua came and talked with them and He said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. The first question we have to ask is, Who is it that gave Yeshua all that authority? Answer? The Father. And since the Father and Son relationship of the Bible is used strictly within the context of Hebrew Middle Eastern culture, not Greek, not Gentile, not 21st century Western culture, then we understand that Christ isn't saying the Father has transferred all of His power and authority that He once carried to His Son Yeshua and now has essentially become an empty vessel and retired. 
Rather, what is meant is that all the Father's power and authority can now be wielded by His Son Yeshua as the Father's authorized agent. But that power that the Son wields is still the Father's. At the end of this verse 20, Peter says that this knowledge that he has about Messiah Yeshua, what his return means, came from all the prophets of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. But is it true, or just an exaggeration, that even the earliest prophets looked ahead and saw the day of Messiah coming and spoke of him? Yes, it's true. And Peter goes on to quote words from Moses in Deuteronomy 18 that gives a stern warning that God is going to raise up another prophet in the future. It says, from among your brothers, meaning the prophet will come from, from the twelve tribes of Israel, and it will be like Moses. And Moses was himself both a prophet and a mediator, which is indeed what Yeshua also is. Only Moses and Yeshua held that God-given privilege of prophet and mediator, or ever will. And the people, Israel, are to listen to this future prophet, or else. What's the purpose of a biblical prophet? A prophet is to announce God's will so that the people, including the Israelite kings, know what God's will is. Thus, this second Moses, Yeshua, will also announce God's will. He or she who refuses to listen to God's will that is announced through Yeshua, we are told, shall be removed from his or her people, Israel, and be destroyed. So Peter is essentially saying that the first prophet to speak of Yeshua was Moses. And then this prophetic testimony was carried on throughout all the later prophets beginning with Samuel. It should not go unnoticed that Samuel was the prophet assigned to anoint Saul as Israel's first king and then later to replace Saul with David. So many of the pronouncements that Samuel made concerning David would also apply to David's royal descendant, Yeshua, meaning the prophecies were messianic prophecies. Then Peter connects these Jews that are standing out before him with the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah by saying they are the sons of the prophets. Saying, these Jews are the sons of the prophets is a Middle Eastern cultural expression. And it means that they are the ones who are the inheritors of what the prophets prophesied. Even more, they are the ones being spoken of in the covenant promise God made to Abraham so long ago when he said, by your seed will all the families of the earth be blessed. And since they are biologically connected with Abraham, then God has determined that it is the Jews to whom Christ would first be sent before anyone else. 
And this is so that the Jews would be the first ones to turn epistrepho from their evil ways and be saved. What must be noticed and acknowledged by Christians especially is that the Lord revolved all of His salvation plans, His efforts, even the persons involved around Israel. The Word of God in stone was given to a Hebrew, Moses. The Word of God in flesh was Himself a Hebrew, Yeshua. And both Moses and Yeshua gave God's Word exclusively to Hebrews. Whatever of God's Word would eventually go to Gentiles went through the lesser, ordinary humans such as the apostles, like Peter and Paul. Indeed, the roots of our faith are Hebrew roots at every level. Let's move on to Acts chapter 4, where we're going to see that no sooner does Peter begin to announce the gospel of Christ than the persecutions begin. And since as of this time the only people who were hearing the gospel were Jews, then of course it was the Jewish leadership who were the persecutors. That's the subject of Acts chapter 4. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1364. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Kepha and Yochanan were still speaking to the people, that's Peter and John, were still speaking to the people um, when the Kohanim, the priests, the captain in charge of the temple police and the Sadukim, the Sadducees, came upon them. Very annoyed that they were teaching the people the doctrine of resurrection from the dead and offering Yeshua as proof. And the temple police arrested them and since it was already evening, they put them in custody overnight. However, many of those who heard the message trusted the number of men alone was about 5,000. The next day, the people's rulers, elders, and Torah teachers assembled in Jerusalem, along with Anan, the Kohen Hagadol, high priest, Caiaphas, Caiaphas, Yochanan, that's John, Alexander, and the, other, and the other men from the family of the high priest. They had the emissaries stand before them and ask, By what power or in what name did you do this? Then Kepha, Peter, filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being examined today about a good deed done for a disabled person, if you want to know how he was restored to health, then let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that it is in the name of the Messiah Yeshua from Nazareth, Nazareth whom you had executed on a stake as a criminal, but whom God has raised from the dead, that this man stands before you perfectly healed. This Yeshua is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given to mankind by whom we must be saved. 
When they saw how bold Peter and John were, even though they were untrained Amharats, they were amazed. Also, they recognized them as having been with Yeshua, and moreover, since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there beside them, there was nothing they could say to discredit the healing. So they told them to step away from the Sanhedrin while they discussed the matter privately. What can we do with these men, they asked each other. Why, anyone in Jerusalem can see that a remarkable miracle has come about through them. We can't possibly deny that. But to prevent it from spreading any further among the people, let's warn them not to speak any more to anyone in this name. So they called them in again. And they ordered them under no circumstances to speak or teach in the name of Yeshua. But Kepha and Yochanan answered, You must judge whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God. As for us, we can't help talking about what we have actually seen and heard. They threatened them some more, but finally let them go. They couldn't punish them because of the people. For everyone was praising God over what had happened, since the man who had been miraculously healed was more than 40 years old. And upon being released, they went back to their friends and they reported what the head priest and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they raised their voices to God with singleness of heart. Master, they prayed, you made heaven, earth, the sea, and everything in them. By the Ruach HaKodesh, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, you said, Why did the nations rage and the peoples devise useless plans? The kings of the earth took their stand. And the rulers assembled together against Adonai and against his Messiah. This has come true in this city. Since Herod and Pontius Pilate with Goim, that's uh, Gentiles, and the people of Israel all assembled against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you made Messiah, to do what your power and plan had already determined beforehand should happen. So now, Lord, take note of their threats and enable your slaves to speak your message with boldness Stretch out your hand to heal, to do signs and miracles through the name of your holy servant, Yeshua. And while they were still praying, the place where they gathered was shaken. They were all filled with the Ruach HaKodesh. They spoke God's message with boldness. All the many believers... All the many believers were one in heart and soul. No one claimed any of his possessions for himself. But everyone shared everything he had. With great power, the emissaries continued testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua. They were all held in high regard. No one among them was poor, since those who owned land or houses sold them and turned over the proceeds to the emissaries to distribute to each according to his need. Thus, Yosef, whom the emissaries called Bar-Nabah, which means the exhorter, a Levite and a native of Cyprus, sold a field which belonged to him, and he brought the money to the emissaries. Let's begin by understanding that what we just read is all occurring within the context and framework of the crippled man. It was still the same day and what Peter said to the crowd in Acts 3 happened immediately upon the healing and then chapter 4 follows at the beginning 
in a matter of an hour or so, perhaps. Verse 1 explains that Peter was still explaining about the healing to the crowd and no doubt answering many questions when apparently this growing assembly of excited and amazed Jews drew the attention of the temple authorities who were always on the lookout for trouble. Those who ran the temple, beginning with the high priest, held their positions only because the Romans permitted it. So they worked hard to be sure that no unrest at the temple would upset the Roman leadership and thus endanger their highly profitable occupations. Now we're told that a contingency of temple leadership came to investigate the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadukim, the Sadducees. This group was quite angry, upset, mainly because of the doctrine that Peter was teaching. And that doctrine was a bodily resurrection of the dead with Yeshua as the proof of their claim. We have a couple items to talk about in this regard. First of all, we should remember that these temple authorities are the same ones who had just weeks earlier sentenced Yeshua to death and turned him over to Pontius Pilate. Same ones. So since the mood of the times was one of great religious fervor and the, the expectation of a Messiah to throw off these oppressive Roman, this oppressive Roman subjugation that the Jews hated, Jerusalem was always just one spark away from a serious riot. Second, the Sadducees were generally seen as heartless and cold in their administration of the temple and in meeting out justice. They were viewed as lackeys of the Romans, more determined to stay in power by pleasing Rome than having concern for justice for their own people, the Jews. The Pharisees were the more popular party of that day. And so the theology of the Pharisees was more widely accepted by the mainstream Jewish public. This issue of the resurrection of the dead, especially bodily resurrection, was enormously controversial. And naturally, the belief of the Pharisees was at the opposite end of the spectrum from the Sadducees. And the belief of the third largest party, the Essens, was on many matters different from both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So if we can just step back for a moment and grasp the big picture, the main thing that the Sadducee temple authority was so upset about was the issue of resurrection of the dead, and that was at the heart of Peter's message. Add it to the other delicate issue of the many followers of Yeshua being pretty bitter and angry at the Sadducees for the injustice done to their leader. And we can see why the Sadducees needed to intervene immediately lest this situation just snowball out of control. Well, Messianic rabbi <clears throat> Joseph Shulam in his commentary on the book of Acts used words from Josephus, the historian Josephus, that described in detail 
some of the theological differences between the three main parties of the Jews, including about the thorny issue of resurrection from the dead, and he expressed the philosophies of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. I can do no better than that. And I think it is so very helpful for Bible students to understand just what the mainstream prevailing views were of resurrection in Christ's era so that we can better digest what we're reading in the New Testament. And, and no place is more affected by these views than the book of Acts. So here's what Josephus had to say, and I'm quoting him now. For it is a fixed belief of the essence that the body is corruptible and its constituent matter impermanent, meaning it's temporary, but that the soul is immortal and imperishable, it's eternal, emanating from the finest ether, now ether is the invisible stuff that souls are made out of, these souls become entangled, as it were, in the prison of the body to which they are dragged down by a sort of natural spell. But once they, the souls, are released from the bonds of flesh after a person dies, then as though liberated from a long servitude, they rejoice and are borne aloft. They, the essence, regard the soul as immortal, so they believe they ought to strive especially to draw near to righteousness. Now, more Josephus. Every soul they, the Pharisees, maintain is imperishable, it's eternal. But the soul of the good, the righteous dead, that passes into another body. While the souls of the wicked suffer eternal punishment. They believe that souls have the power to survive death and that there are rewards and punishment under the earth, meaning in the grave, for those who have led lives of virtue or vice. Eternal imprisonment is the lot of evil souls, while good souls receive an easy passage to a new life. A little more from Josephus. The Sadducees hold that the soul perishes along with the body at death. They do away with fate altogether. They remove God beyond not merely the commission, but the very sight of evil. They maintain that man has the free choice of good or evil, and that it rests within each man's free will, whether he follows one or the other. As for the persistence of the soul after death, of penalties in the underworld and rewards, they will have none of them. Another interesting belief of the Sadducees was that they did not believe in the oral Torah or what Yeshua called the traditions of the elders. They held that only the written law, the Torah law, the law of Moses, was valid and it was to be applied in the strictest possible manner. This, of course, was the opposite of the Pharisees who put the oral Torah on par with, or sometimes above, the written Torah. But the bottom line for our story in Acts chapter 4 is, 
that the Sadducees denied the possibility of either resurrection of the soul or the body. When you're dead, you're dead. And your soul dies along with you. Your existence in any form ceases. There is no afterlife. At the same time, the Pharisees so strongly believed in the resurrection of the soul and transference of that soul into another body, a kind of reincarnation, that they said that anyone who does not believe in this doctrine, the same as they do, has no place in the world to come. In Hebrew, the Olam Haba. Sounds a little bit like Christian denominations today, doesn't it? who say that if you don't accept most of their particularly cherished doctrines, you might not even be a Christian. Well, since it is said that priests and the captain of the temple police and the Sadducees were part of the entourage, they came to arrest Peter and John. Let's talk about them for a moment. The priests here are referring to what's called the chief priests. Now, there were a large number of them. They were the most senior of the regular priests who were in charge of the various courses of priests who served in a rotation at the temple. The captain of the temple police is called the Sagan. Sagan. And he belonged to one or another of the families of the chief priests. He was of a very high rank with only the high priest above him. So he carried great authority. The temple police is the same group that had arrested Christ on that infamous Passover night a few weeks earlier. The temple police were not Romans. They were hand-picked Levites. Although there is evidence that in certain circumstances Roman soldiers might accompany the Levite temple policemen. Now the Sadducees were aristocrats of wealthy families and the high priests were Sadducees. Further, the Sadducees were the top officials of the Jewish high court called the Great Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin consisted of a mixture of Pharisees and Sadducees. Now the Great Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the Jews when it came to religious matters. It operated near the temple grounds in a building traditionally called the Building of Hewn Stones. Of course, because of the way Jewish law worked, religious and civil matters overlapped. And depending on who the current procurator of Judea was, at this time it was Pontius Pilate, The Sanhedrin tended to deal with most criminal matters provided it was among Jews and it did not involve Romans. It was a group that consisted of 71 men and it was modeled after Moses and his group of 70 elders. The high priest was the head of the Sanhedrin. And then the 70 other members were organized using a seniority system and they were seated using a series of benches. You see that in the picture here. Much like the way the British Parliament works. That is, you have the most senior members who sit up front. Behind them are less senior members and behind them the most junior members. And when a senior member vacates his 
front bench position, the Sanhedrin member, to, uh, this junior to him that sits behind him, moves up to the front bench. When he moves up, the most junior member behind him also moves up to take his seat and then the now empty back bench seat is filled with a new member to the court. So those who came to arrest Peter and Paul bore the greatest legal authority in Judea other than for the Roman purator, uh, uh, procurator Pontius Pilate indicating just how seriously they took this matter of resurrection theology and calling on the name of Yeshua especially as one who was resurrected and to this of course there were many witnesses now because it was late in the day the two disciples were put into jail overnight to be dealt with the next day at the convenience of the court However, we're told that before their arrest came, some 5,000 men came to faith in Yeshua. A huge number that indicates just how enormous this crowd had become and it actually justifies the concern of the temple authorities. In fact, although there is some scholarly debate as to whether this number 5,000 is men and women combined, or men only, the Greek word used here is on drone, and it means males, not people in general. So that means that probably double that number, adding in women, came to faith based on Peter's speech and the result of the healing of that cripple. So in verse 5 we're told that rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem along with some specific priests to hear the case. Rulers, elders, and scribes are names for various classes of members of the great Sanhedrin. The rulers was just an alternate name for the chief priests. Elders refer to Jewish nobility but they were laymen. They were not Levites or priests. Now scribes is a little bit hazy because over the centuries the term evolved and it took on various meanings. It seems that in the New Testament era they were a kind of ruling class whose members could come from any one of, of several walks of life from lord or priest to rich merchants even to artisans these were men who had attained a social status called hachamim hachamim and this Hebrew word was used to denote ordained scholars they were scholars so they were well educated and they were experts in matters of business and law now the scribes were highly educated people especially trained in writing skills. What we now know is that while learning and speaking languages fluently and even reading well was common among the Jews of Yeshua's day it was seen as an entirely different issue than learning how to write the high priests and the aristocrats often couldn't write. Thus they hired scribes to do it for them. See, scribes of this era 
had to literally manufacture their own paper and ink. They had to fashion their own writing instruments. So writing involved an entire set of various skills to accomplish. One didn't just go to the marketplace and and buy a few sheets of paper, some ink, and a pen and get started. In fact, ink in those days didn't even penetrate the papyrus paper. Although problematic on one hand, on the other hand, the ink just sat on the surface of the paper so that it could be wiped or scraped off if there was an error. A sheet of papyrus paper could even be wiped clean and reused. Well, along with the rulers and the elders and the scribes who came to hear Peter and John's case, Kepha and Yochanan, were other members of the Sanhedrin. Anas, called the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander. And as verse 6 says, they all belonged to the high priestly family. Let's spend a little time talking about the high priest system in New Testament times. The first thing to know is it didn't operate at all the way the Torah prescribed it. Not at all. Upon the Maccabean rebellion of 164 AD and the subsequent retaking of the Jewish rebels um, by the Jewish rebels of the temple from the Syrian army in Antiochus Epiphanes, which by the way is remembered by the holiday of Hanukkah, The authorized high priest was deposed and he was sent packing. The now deposed high priest was of the line of Zadok, who was the rightful line of high priest stemming from Aaron. But the Hasman family, led by Judas the Maccabee, who was the hero of the rebellion, essentially took over the civil and religious governing of Judea. The result was that from that time forward, the priesthood, the high priesthood, became a political office that could be bought and sold. Even though it was usually occupied by a person of Levite descent, and equally as usual, that Levite to belong to one priestly line or another, it wasn't of the proper God-ordained line, the line of Zadok. The Torah law makes it that the high priest is to be high priest for life. Then only when he dies, his firstborn son takes his spot, he reigns as high priest until he dies, and then so on and so on. So the high priest office, you see, according to the Torah, was inherited. It wasn't chosen. But now, since the Maccabean Rebellion, a high priest might occupy the office for a few months or years and then decide to vacate and turn it over to another family member or he might have it taken away from him. Or if the price was right, he could sell it to another family entirely. So suddenly, there were a number of current and former high priests all living at the same time. And they all retained the title of high priest even though they only served one at a time as the acting high priest. It's just like it is in America with high political offices. I mean, for instance, all of our former presidents retained their title of president for life even after they've left office. Same for governors. It's just a political tradition. So in Acts chapter 4... 
While Anas is called high priest, he was actually only the patriarch of the reigning high priestly family. He was not actually the current high priest. The current high priest was his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And so for Anas, high priest was just an honorary title. John and Alexander were other members of the high priest family, but so far as the records show, they had not been high priests up to now. So in the New Testament, we're going to occasionally encounter words to the effect that the high priests, plural, did so-and-so. That's not an error. There were a number of ex-high priests running around who continued to hold that high status and retained that title. In fact, during the times, the few times, (laughs) that Judea was not occupied by a foreign power, such as immediately following the Maccabean Rebellion, the high priest was also the head of state. That is, he was governor of Judea as well as high priest of the temple. Hyrcanus is, is one such example. In our story, Anas was the tenth high priest from the time of Herod the Great, who reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. So a high priest came and went at an alarming rate And interestingly, Anas was not appointed by a Jewish high priestly family. Instead, he was appointed by the then current Roman governor Quirinius in 6 BC. So here we see that even control of the religious establishment of Judea, meaning the temple, well that came under direct rule of the Romans starting in 6 BC and went on through 38 AD when Agrippa was finally able to restore at least religious rule to the Jews. Anas held the office of high priest for eight or nine years before he was removed by the Roman governor Valerius Gratus. He was also he also appointed Anas's son-in-law Caiaphas to be the new high priest, an office he obviously, he held obviously at the time of our story, but eventually he would be deposed in 36 AD. I know this is a lot of history, but my intention for you was to get a good picture of the state of the temple and the priesthood and how it all operated during the time of Christ. How it was during the time of Peter and Paul right up until the temple was destroyed. Until in 70 AD. You know, it's no wonder that Yeshua showed no respect to the temple authorities and that the essence split with the temple, labeled the temple authorities as the sons of darkness, and then they set up shop out by the Dead Sea. I think we'll continue our study of Acts chapter 4 next time.